Good morning, uh, River City. Um, we were planning on finishing the first part of our series in Luke's Gospel this morning. Uh, Devin had been preparing all week to preach, and we were going to finish the end of chapter 7, and then starting next week, move into uh, our summer series. Um, but in light of the events of this past week, especially as things continued to escalate and progress, we felt as elders the responsibility of shepherding you by addressing some of these things head on. How do we think biblically? How do we apply the gospel broadly in circumstances like these? And so we're going to pause on what we are going to do, and we're going to move all that to next week, which is kind of nice because Devin's already prepped all of his message for next week. Um, we're going to finish... Uh, uh, Lord willing, uh, the end of Luke chapter 7 next Sunday, and then the Sunday after that, the second Sunday in, in June, we'll start in on our, on our summer series. Um, now, if you were expecting this morning a well-put-together three-point expositional sermon, I have to tell you I don't have that for you today. Much of what uh, you have here, what I have here, <clears throat> has been slowly brewing this week, and um, mostly was compiled and put together last night and edited this morning. I was sitting over here in my office while these guys were getting all the tech stuff uh, set up after uh, doing some sweeping and cleaning of the broken window, uh, which, by the way, if you hear traffic, um, I joked with Devin, we have a little open-air preaching today that we weren't planning on. If you hear traffic or the beeping of the crosswalk signal, just, um, it is what it is. Um, but as this has kind of been brewing in, in my own heart this week um, and kind of put together, compiled, my hope this morning is to maybe ask a few questions about how we can and should think about the things we've seen and heard this week through a biblical lens and, Lord willing, see how the gospel of Jesus Christ shapes our response. I confess <clears throat> this week has been really challenging for me to process I've had a number of phone calls with people who live in the Twin Cities and um, friends of mine who have um, black sons and daughters who are having hard conversations with their kids that I don't have to have with my kids. And so it's been heavy and challenging and <clears throat> I've wrestled a lot in prayer this week asking the Lord, what what does it look like to, to take what I know to be true about you and how you've made us in your work of the gospel in Christ Jesus and, and apply that? Mm. Sorry. Uh, like many of you, I saw the videos. I watched in horror as a man named George Floyd was, was killed while people stood, captured on video, pleading with the officers to relent, but seemingly helpless to intervene. I couldn't bear to watch, and yet I couldn't turn away. It was immediately clear to me how, how wrong this was. This is not how it's supposed to be. And I couldn't watch the videos or read the stories without tears, often. And over the next days, I watched a community mourn as the grief and anger and pain poured out in demonstrations and in, and in people gathering and, and marching. I couldn't help but hear the cries of the psalmist in their voices. How long? How long, O oh Lord? 
And then as night fell, the past few evenings, I sat stunned as opportunists seized on the grief of a community and began to foment destruction and violence. And I've spoken with friends and churches in the area uh, near Lake Street in Minneapolis and in a Midway uh, neighborhood in St. Paul, and they're weeping with their neighbors and they're working together to make plans for cleanup, for rebuilding, for, for safety. And so we see the posts and we watch the videos and we glance down at every notification that our phone beeps at us from Facebook or Twitter as it explodes with hashtags expressing anger and sadness and confusion and grief. And when the reality of this brokenness brought about by sin, while this has been present since Adam, we feel it more acutely at times. And, and I confess from my own heart and maybe for yours, this week has been particularly heavy. Even here in Fargo, last night, just blocks from here, some people bent towards destruction, vandalized and looted businesses right here downtown. It took riot gear and tear gas to disperse that crowd. As Charlie mentioned, we had a few uh, windows broken here, and this is all very minor in comparison to what we're seeing in other places. It wasn't anything near like it's been in some cities, but the events of last night, even here downtown Fargo, were significant enough that both the mayor and the governor declared a state of emergency. It's as if a global pandemic wasn't enough. We look around and go, is the world just on fire? <laughs> and so in the face of death and violence and unrest, millions of voices are, are clamoring for, for justice and for peace. And we want those things too, and we search and labor for those things. And we find that justice and peace are scarce commodities. Death has become far too commonplace. We talked about this at Good Friday. We, it, we're, too, we're so familiar with it that we dislike the fact that it's familiar. Violence seems senseless, and loss and despair seem to rule the day. It's hard to not feel overwhelmed and hopeless. And that doesn't even dive into the details, the, the, the deep issues surrounding uh, the, the tension that happens often in communities between citizens and police officers or racial tensions in the U.S. that continue to get stretched thin. Combine all of that, mix it all in the pot with our complicated history as a nation and the often unknown and unaware biases and attitudes that we all carry around and we don't recognize and always realize how they shape how we see what we see. So I ask myself, with everything else that's been said and written, what can we possibly add? What can I possibly add to the conversation that isn't just more noise? What could possibly be a helpful and pastoral response to what has happened this week for the people of River City? And as I've wrestled, there's one thing that seems to rise to the surface as I've prayed, as I've searched the scriptures, as I've sought wisdom and, and listened uh, to other uh, pastors and brothers and sisters wrestle through this with their own communities. And so this is what I, I, I think the Spirit of God would have me share this morning, is that when we look at the events of the day, we tend to lose sight of the people involved. We too often lose sight of the imago Dei, the image of God, 
Devin brought it up first thing in our prayer, that man is made in God's image. Now, I'm sure guilty of this. It's easier to do a quick sort of what I see and hear into clean and organized political categories or theological categories or categories of personal experience. And so if if what's being said or what I'm seeing doesn't align with my politics, doesn't align with my theological convictions, doesn't have a direct impact on me, then it's easier to uh, organize it into its category, into its box, and ignore it or dismiss it. And, And we do this all the time. Some of it we have to because there's just so much information. We need a filter with which to sort it. But when it comes to people, we overlook the Imago Dei. Now, some of you may have shifted in your chair a little bit when I said the name of George Floyd. Uh Uh-oh. Is Jake getting political? I would argue no, that this is not a political issue. This is a gospel issue. While there are larger and very complex issues and components around race and around protesting and around policing, and many of those things are multifaceted and deserve careful nuance. Often, specific events are more clear. To quote uh, Pastor Michael Lawrence, he was writing for Nine Marks this week on the question of how to talk about the death of George Floyd and what's happened this past week. Here's what he said. An African-American man, apparently a Christian, was killed unjustly while under restraint by police using excessive force. And while we should wait for the courts to render judgment, we should not wait to grieve a death that should not have happened. It's okay to say that. Because we all want to be treated with dignity. All of us. And as human beings, we have an inherent dignity and worth that should be acknowledged. Not self-existing, as Devin said. We don't create this value ourselves. We have dignity and worth as human beings because we are made in the image and the likeness of God. In the beginning, God made male and female, one humanity, distinct from all other created things, created in God's image and likeness. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. And God said, Let us make man in our own image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Unique among all creation was the creation of man and woman. And we know that there's this dignity in humanity because we feel it when life is lost. And yet we look around at the disregard for life from those yet to be born to what we've seen this past week and we have a a tough time reconciling the discontinuity. Christian theologian and philosopher Francis Schaeffer wrote this in 1968 and it's applicable today. We are unable to hold on to the dignity of humanity because we've lost sight, or excuse me, we, because we've lost the truth that men and women are created in the image of God. And I think he's right. How do we know we've lost sight of this truth? Well, when, when human life is more easily counted in statistics rather than names. When we overgeneralize and see groups of people and categorize into them when we fail to see 
death as a tragedy. When, when our emotion keeps us from seeking justice and the facts of a situation, and when the desire for facts hinders our ability to weep with those who weep. John Calvin, in his commentary on the sixth commandment, Thou shalt not kill, says this, Because we are bound together in a common unity that God has made us all, in general, therefore, all violence and injustice, every kind of harm from which our neighbor's body suffers, is prohibited. Accordingly, we are required faithfully to do what, what in us What's in us lies to defend the life of our neighbor, to promote whatever tends to his tranquility, to be vigilant in warding off harm, and when danger comes, to assist in removing it. And Calvin grounds that common unity in two things, that we share the same flesh, that we are of the same thing, the same kind, all humanity, and that humanity is created in the image of God. And this means two things for us. One, it means that All people deserve dignity and respect. And we, as followers of Jesus, not only bearing the mark as image bearers, but willfully carrying the mark of Jesus as well, are to be examples and vehicles of mercy because God in Christ has been merciful to us. And if that is true, then we're to honor the Imago Dei, the image of God in men and women. And that means, too, that we are called in times like these to respond with mercy and compassion. Yes, there are going to be differences. Yes, there are going to be moral issues to wade through and biblical disagreement with people, even other professing Christians. But none of those things preclude our responsibility to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep, Romans chapter 12. And as Pastor H.B. Charles said, the, the Bible exhorts us to weep with those who weep. It doesn't tell us to judge whether they should be weeping. And this is where we zero in on how the gospel impacts how we view this. Paul says in 2 Corinthians this, starting in verse 16 of chapter 5, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So we start with the Imago Dei, created in the image and likeness of God, Genesis 1. And we add to that, and we, we, we uh, grow in that to add the new creation, the recreation through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Notice the language Paul uses here. God reconciles the world to himself through Christ, no longer counting our trespasses against us. Praise be to God. And we'll come back to this. 
and then through those he has reconciled, he now spreads a message of reconciliation. And according to 1 John, the forgiveness and newness of life that comes in Christ not only restores our fellowship with God, although it does that, but it restores and enables actual fellowship with one another. This is huge. So we, of all people, of all people, are called and equipped to be able to weep with those who weep, to grieve wickedness and injustice, to expose the, the deeds of darkness where we see them, to lament the destruction that's brought by sin. And the challenge in my heart and part of my wrestle this week, and maybe yours, is this. What keeps my heart, what keeps me from weeping with those who weep? What keeps me from grieving injustice? From what keeps me from lamenting the destructive effects of sin? Two things rose to the surface for me. Well, it might, well, we might feel it temporarily. We don't often cry out to God because it really doesn't affect us that much. And let's be honest, that's a human problem. We don't enter in because it doesn't hit close enough to home. Now, hear me for a second. There is no way for any of us to carry around all the burdens of all the evil that we see and encounter. On the one hand, I'm grateful for the technology that we have that we didn't even have 20 or 30 years ago. If not for a cell phone camera, who would have known what actually happened on that Minneapolis street last Monday evening? And at the same time, there are thousands upon thousands of messages and stories and retweets and shares of things near and far, carrying bridge accounts for people we'll never meet, post after post talking about trafficking and genocide and violence. And we know we can't care equally about all these things. And I'm not saying we should. We don't have to apologize for that. However, I think we are called, when confronted with evil, at least be willing to offer our prayer, offer our meager cry, how long, O oh Lord? So that's the first reason, is that it doesn't really affect us sometimes. It's not close enough. And two, the second reason we have a tougher time weeping, I have a tougher time weeping with those who weep, is because we lack humility. And again, here, this is a common problem to humanity. And it's fed by our constant string of data. We read two articles on the internet and now we've got the facts. Now we're the experts. Now that's not to say there's no place to disagree or for careful analysis of information and a willingness to engage with others. But not out of arrogance to, to shout down others or to put our fingers in our ears because we don't have to learn anymore. The reality is there is often so much that we do not know and do not understand. There's so much history and, and personal experience and how our cultural values affect the way that someone might see themselves and see the world that is shaped by that history and by those experiences. And we are called as ambassadors of Christ, as ministers of reconciliation, not to nitpick the details, but we are called to mercy. How arrogant of me to assume 
that me being well-read on a topic allows me to not have to engage personally in someone else's brokenness. I'm preaching to myself there. If that affects you too, if you're thinking that way, hallelujah. But how, how, how arrogant of me to assume that because I've read on the topic and I feel like I have some knowledge now, that gives me permission to not enter into someone else's brokenness. Humility instead seeks to understand. Humility seeks to learn. Humility offers grace that is extravagant, uh, grace that's offensive to our sensibilities of fairness. And biblically, we should clamor and fight for justice, righteousness, things that are honorable. We should plead for mercy, which is undeserved because we've received mercy. So, I've asked a question of myself, what do I, what do, I do with all this? I'm here in Fargo. I don't, I don't live in Minneapolis. I have friends that do. What do I do with all this? And so I've outlined for me and for us three things. To pray, to fast, and to engage. First, to pray and to start here and praying for my own heart. That my desire for my own heart would be re- to more readily move toward mercy rather than move toward defensiveness. I desire for my posture to resemble Jesus, who was distressed and yet not hopeless, who endured sin for me, that this would move my heart to mercy. Uh, Gospel Coalition uh, editor and writer Justin Taylor says, the world has no explanation for the sinfulness of sin and no hope for true and lasting justice. We have a better and truer story. If we have received mercy in Christ Jesus, may we pray that He would turn that around, that we might move towards mercy ourselves rather than towards defensiveness. I'm praying for my own heart. Two, I'm praying for my neighbors. That I would not first work towards self-preservation but I would see others as more important than myself. Philippians chapter 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's not to say we don't take care of look to our own interests, but we don't look only to our own interests. Pray for my own heart. I pray for those around me, my neighbors, and I pray for my city. Jeremiah 29 speaks of a people going into exile as sojourners in a land that is not their home. And as much as this is my home and we love it and we work for the betterment of this city, we also recognize that we are sojourners here. We long for a home to come. And so while we are here, we work for the welfare of this city where God has placed us. So we pray. The second thing that I've been wrestling over is a a, a conviction to to fast in order to deal with long-standing historical problems and challenges this will take a significant effort of spiritual warfare because as paul says in ephesians we wrestle not against flesh and blood we wrestle against uh, the rulers 
and the authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we bring our prayers and our concerns before God and we fast and pray that the Spirit might intervene in and through His church. We pray and we fast and we engage. And my desire from my own heart that it would lead to actions that would be compassionate and understanding rather than self-justifying. I want to weep when there's sin and injustice. I don't want to shrug. It is our calling as Christians to weep with those who weep, not to shrug. I want to call us to the Biblical fidelity to defend the widow and the orphan that's right around us, right here, James 1. That we would be slow to speak and quick to listen and to learn, James 1.19, just a few verses later. And then as Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, that here in Christ we remember, as Devin prayed earlier, that there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And if that's true, Paul says, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Where there's opportunity to pray, we pray. Where there's opportunity to fast, we fast. Where there's opportunity to do good to others, we do good to others. And please hear me. I'm not trying to heap up guilt for where you are and where God has placed you. I'm confident and I rest in God's sovereignty. God has placed you where you are with a purpose. So pray where you are, fast where you are, engage where you are, in your home, with your children, and with your neighbors, and with your co-workers. I, I don't want you to hear in this a, a rant or hopelessness, rather just the opposite, that God in his sovereign care has placed each of us exactly where we are. He desires to work through his people for the expansion of the gospel and for the joy of all people. I admit, my first reaction when I got the picture, um, I was on my way here and Kyle sent me a picture like, hey, there, a couple of windows are broken. My first reaction was, oh man. And my next one was, God has placed us here for his purpose, for the good of the people who live and work here so that the gospel might spread from this place and go out from here for their joy and for their flourishing. We are blessed to be a blessing. We have been reconciled to God and now we are agents of gospel reconciliation. So can I encourage us this morning when we're prone to doubt and grief and despair to, to enter into those places, yes, to weep with those who weep, but also, may we have eyes to see that we are now agents of reconciliation no matter where we are. By God's design, we are made in His image. 
And although sin has marred that image and sin continues to be the root cause of of brokenness, of injustice, of strife, of racial divides, of division, the beauty of Christ's gospel is that in Christ all that is broken is made new. We are now both reconciled to God, no longer his enemies. We are sons and daughters, and there is no longer division with one another. We are now one in Christ Jesus. In view of this, this is my heart's prayer. O Lord, open my eyes to see where I am blind to the challenges of others who are not like me. Break my heart with compassion and not just pity. Give me mercy and not condescension. Enable me to weep with the brokenhearted and give me courage to speak up against injustice in favor of truth, always working toward peace. May we pray for both justice and mercy. May we fast, pleading with God to make His glory known among the brokenness that we see. And may we engage as the hands and feet of Jesus, listening and learning and working with compassion because of the great love with which Christ has loved us. Lord, have mercy on us. Christ, have mercy on us. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your good and sovereign care. That we do not grieve and and wrestle um, wandering and hopeless, but we have a, a surety that anchors us. That you are at work even in the midst of grief and pain and destruction, that nothing No power of hell, no scheme of man can pluck us from your hand, can thwart your will at work in the world. I pray for my heart, I pray for the people of River City that you would uh, do these things that we've prayed, that you would open our eyes to see where we're blind, that you would break our hearts with compassion and not just pity, that we would be merciful, that you'd enable us to weep with the brokenhearted and give us courage to, to speak out, to, to see and expose the evil deeds of darkness and to proclaim the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Would you work in and through your church to lift up and glorify the work of Christ to bring reconciliation? And would you start at home Purify your bride. Make yourself great through her words and her actions that we might be agents of hope and fulfill our mission as agents of reconciliation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.